0: Welcome to Human Stories with Jill Hazard-Rowe, where we explore humanity in all of its realms. We are so honored to have in the studio tonight, Jack Hayden.
1: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me here.
0: Hi. (laughs) Just for a little background for the audience of how Jack and I met, we had the opportunity to be on a panel together to discuss some um, elementary school books that some parents in Utah are uncomfortable with and are trying to ban from um, our school system. And so Jack and I uh, were able to be on that panel and answer some questions and share our story with um, an audience and I think it went really well. I think there were conservative parents there that I think walked away thinking maybe we don't have the whole story. And I think that's um, why this particular podcast is very important. If people Mm -hmm. are brave enough to listen to the stories, I have found that you can't help for your heart and your mind to change and to look at life a little bit differently. So thank you for being here.
1: I appreciate the opportunity, and I agree. Stories are everything.
0: Yeah. So I'm just going to give you the mic, Jack. It's all yours. Oh,
1: my. So I wasn't really sure what to bring in for today. Um, Little background on me. I mean, currently... um, my role is as a therapist at Encircle, where I get to work with queer youth, their families, and you know everybody in between. And um, it's been a long journey getting to this point, um, personally, professionally, and all of that. But um, just like you're saying, stories do change hearts and minds. And as somebody who was initially an English major, Um, stories are my jam. I I read voraciously, and I like to read from different perspectives, different orientations, all of that. And I feel like the work that I do really encapsulates that. And um, even though that's the case, sharing my own story is not something I've really done all that much. So I'm kind of curious where you want me to start.
0: (laughs) Well, we have found um, some of our guests come in with notes and sort of an agenda, and within the first ten minutes, they're completely off of that <laughs> because our whole um, feel here is being organic. And so your story is going to take you wherever it's supposed to be today. A lot of our guests start with telling the human stories audience, like where you were born, a little bit about your family, and a little bit about if you were re- um, raised in any religion, a little bit about your youth, and. Maybe when you knew that you were part of the queer community, those things.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I having listened to some of the episodes of this amazing podcast, I did think, "Geez, my story isn't isn't as similar to some of these folks." Um, there are some some comparisons to ma- be made, obviously, but um, like I, I did grow up in Utah. I was born in Sandy um, grew up there and in Cottonwood Heights, only child, um, was not part of the, the dominant faith here in Utah. Um, so from out of the womb, I was already an outlier, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) Um, and, you know, being an only child, um, kind of an outlier in a way in my own family, just being the only kid. Um, and, you know, my childhood, there wasn't, you know, any, huge you know abuse or feeling like I couldn't necessarily be queer or anything like that all the same there is still this underlying like I don't fit in here there are things about me that somehow just don't jive with the way that my family is the way that my society is the way school is all of that but um yeah I'm kind of Kind of going on, I'm yammering. No, That's...
0: oh yeah, we discussed that word before we came on, <laughs> yammering. He has, he has a lots of um weird, not weird, very mature words I'm writing down, yammering, yeah. which means... There's a quiz later. Yeah, yam- yammering means... <laughs> going on and on and on. Oh, yammering. Yeah. I yammer all the time then. <laughs> um. Do you mind telling us about your parents, what they were like, their personalities, their professions, how they parented you?
1: Yeah. So, so like I said, only child. Um, my, my parents are very different in personality. Um, I was far closer with my mom than I was or am with my dad. Um, and my parents eventually divorced when I was around 13. But, um, my mom was, was very heavily involved, got me engaged in a lot of different activities that I think, She did not only to broaden my horizons and, you know, get me invested in a lot of different activities, culture, all of that, but I think uh, looking at her own childhood, there were things that she missed that she wanted me to have. So, um, for instance, at age four, like a lot of kids, I was put into piano lessons, Mm -hmm. um, and that, over the course of about a decade, evolved into me doing competitive piano playing, um, which sounds really dull and boring, but it is ruthless. Yeah. Um, and it took up a lot of my time as a kid. But um, I know that made my parents proud um, and all of that. Um, my mom, unfortunately, never really got the opportunity to pursue um, a professional career of her choosing, um, just by a confluence of factors. I think growing up as a cisgender woman in the 70s and in the 80s, um, there were a lot of gender roles foisted upon her that she felt really constrained by. Um, and so she, she often used me, I think as a catalyst to get some, to help me accomplish things that she never had the chance to, but she did a lot to, to take care of me. Um, she uh, primarily worked as an executive secretary in lots of different fields a lot of really asinine bosses um Mm. we've talked about that um since you know I've gotten older and just comparing what my experience has been like in my career as opposed to hers and the things that she put up with I mean it was it's it's atrocious but we're we don't have to go down that rabbit hole um my dad I'm still not at 37 I'm still not entirely sure what he did for a living because a lot of the time I didn't see him work. Um, He, from what I understood, was an investment banker, did something with the stock market. Um, But there were a lot of um, financial hardships that faced our family. Um, Some shady dealings, I think, (laughs) um, went down. And it caused a lot of tension between my parents. And as the only child, um, didn't really have a lot of other places to go to really vent, get support, um, except for my grandparents. And I know at some point I'm going to cry, but uh, thank you, tissues. (laughs) (laughs) My, um, My dad's family lived in Kansas, didn't really have any contact with them outside of the holidays, but my mom's parents lived locally. And from the time I was tiny, tiny, tiny baby, um they took care of me they were second parents and i really don't think i would have become the person i am today without them particularly my grammy grammy was i think the first person who really saw this little unabashedly queer kid i mean if you look at pictures of me growing up, I mean, there, there was no question that I was this little queer kid, um, <laughs> like uh, assigned female at birth, definitely tomboy. Um, like there's this picture of me that's coming to mind. Um, I couldn't have been older than like three or four and it's at Disneyland and I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts and I've got this definitely like page boy haircut and like this pith ha- helmet on and I just look like your stereotypical little boy, but they were raising me as a little girl. But my grandma, she really indulged me in in the play that affirmed who I was. We didn't have the terms, queer, trans, whatever it was back then, but she just let me be who I was um, and was there to be a listening ear when things were going off the rails with my parents. I got to spend the weekend with them Pretty much every weekend, and really got that maternal love there um that I don't think my mom had the capacity to give because she was dealing with her own shit yeah um, but Grammy was just in incredible um, growing up, I had this this fascination with all of these different male characters from different stories um which probably i mean looking back can be like, oh. I was so trans, Um, but at the time, obviously didn't know that. But um, she didn't shame me for that. She didn't try to make me be more feminine. She didn't try to um, make me be something that I wasn't. Did she at one point sew me a tutu while I was taking dance lessons for like a hot second? Yes. But was she sad when I dropped out of ballet? No. No. That wasn't the thing that she did. She was just like, oh, you don't like it? Okay. But every time I would see her, uh, (laughs) this is, I was such a weird kid. Um, I had a fascination with um, A Christmas Carol, particularly Tiny Tim, and we would play pretend for hours upon hours that I was Tiny Tim, and she (laughs) would take the role of Scrooge and it it was just our thing and I have um, letters and things from her that talk about how much she loved that and what I remember about those times with her pretending to be Tiny Tim was, was like I get to be a little boy like I'm just this little boy who knew he was a little boy but could only do that through this other character and here I had Grammy supporting that And that isn't to say that my parents didn't encourage me to do more quote-unquote masculine things. Like I played baseball. I was really academically um, uh, competitive, which typically is framed in a more masculine way. They were really encouraging of me as a young child to pursue those things. So um, that was never, never a question. But once I hit, like, middle school, it was like, okay, that phase is done. Yeah. Now you have to be a young woman. It wasn't said in so many terms, but I think that that's the impression that I got. And I re- I have very strong feelings about that now, um, that I'm, like, this unabashed feminist therapist <laughs> that I am. But um, it was – that was heartbreaking as a kid. Do you
0: feel comfortable? I have a couple questions. Sure. But on this topic, do you feel comfortable sharing why your parents just changed so drastically when you became a preteen?
1: I really think... I don't think it was malicious. Not by any stretch of the imagination. I think that it was protective. Mm -hmm. Um, I have have a strong memory of... um, when I reached like about age 12 and I was playing baseball for the longest time, I was the only girl on the baseball team and I kicked the boys' asses. So there's that. But I think because puberty was hitting Mm -hmm. and all of that, I don't know, gender segregation that goes along with that, whether we like that or not, um, made them scared for me to be in, involved in those things, in sports, um, because there was still the notion that, oh, the boys are going to be stronger, they're going to be better at this, Mm -hmm. and we don't want you to get hurt. So I think it was with the best of intentions, and regardless, the impact was was really harmful, because baseball was something that I I adored. So they just took you out of baseball
0: at a certain age?
1: Yep, yep. Um, being academically proficient was still something to pursue. That right. was more acceptable. I like how
0: you acknowledge, though, because I'm like twinging because we took our daughter out of football when she hit sixth grade. We're like, she's gonna get crucified, you know? <laughs> they were, she was yeah. so much smaller, you know, but she really, really loved to play football with the boys. But I, th- I think it's important. It was painful for you, but to acknowledge that your parents did it they thought they were protecting you yeah i think not only trying to push you in another gender role but also um
1: physically maybe yeah um and bodies were always a hard topic in our in our house um like growing up i was bullied relentlessly for not meeting the standard of what a a girl was supposed to look like. I was not this waifish, you know, pretty young thing, <laughs> young girl. I mean, I had muscles. I was bigger. I mean, I wasn't I mean, I just wasn't what people thought a girl right. should look like. And um and that that was hard dealing with the bullying from my peers. Um but looking back, I I do see some encouragement of oh you're a girl you need to meet these these yeah. standards from my parents because I know yeah. especially my mom um, she's had her own struggles as I think any person who's been socialized female in this society has had um, to you know look a certain way and she didn't want her daughter to experience that either and so even though my body type and my build was really great for me playing sports up to a certain point once puberty hit, it's like, there are lots of things going on. Let's separate this. Um, and it made me feel, I think even more self-conscious about my body. Um, and that was
0: unpleasant. Yeah. I can try to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, was piano, like, a refuge for you?
1: It was and it wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: what kid likes to practice? Let's be serious. Yeah,
1: and I was practicing, I mean, four, five, six hours a day. Um, it was, like, a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was good. I wasn't the best, um, but I did competitions locally, got to play, like, in the lobby of a Bravanel Hall a few times, all of these amazing things, Um and the times that I was really successful obviously felt great. Yeah. But that went by the wayside, too, um, because, as I said, there was some financial hardship that we were facing um, at, at about the age of, again, 13, 12, 13. My parents went bankrupt and um, some things had to go by the wayside. And it turned out that piano had to go by the wayside because um, piano lessons weren't getting paid for. Um,
0: Oh man, a lot of, a lot of things happened to you when you were twelve, thirteen. Yeah, it was a pretty.
1: <laughs> There's been therapy about that <laughs> period of time. I yeah. yeah, a lot happened. I had a I had a thought of
0: this is going way back. Well, not way back. Cause we've only been together a few minutes, but <laughs> way back to ten minutes ago when you were talking about Grammy, and I was just wondering, do you have any like insight? of why she was so open to the possibilities and so encouraging to you?
1: I think that's just who she was. Yeah. Um, You know, my mom and I, uh, since I uh, came out as trans um, almost six years ago, um, have had conversations about whether my grandparents would be accepting if they would get it. Mm. And one, I don't think that they would, (laughs) to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult concept to explain to people who are in the know, um, let alone people who just don't have that knowledge or know where to look. But what I do know is that my grandma just accepted people for who they are. She was feisty. She didn't let people get away with shit, Um, Mm -hmm. but she had this inherent compassionate nature, this warmth about her that if there was something going on with you you knew she was there like (laughs) yeah um she just accepted people for who they are and whether or not she understood it didn't really make a difference yeah and I'm really grateful for that and I like to think that the work that I'm doing now as a therapist comes in no small portion to her influence she would Absolutely. have been a fantastic therapist, but I think she was. She was. She really you know, was. Not all of
0: us have degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um I don't know, I can feel you guys' relationship every time you would be tiny Tim with her. <laughs> and she not only let you be tiny Tim, but she also played a role.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. I can
0: figure I can picture her picking you up and swinging you around. <laughs> <laughs>
1: She was she was just an, an incredible woman. And um, she, like, I'm thinking back to some of the things that she did that were really affirming as a little trans kid. Um, like I said, she made, like, a tutu when I was doing ballet for the five seconds that I did. But she also yearly would make my Halloween costumes, like hand-sewn Halloween costumes. And she knew that... I loved Pinocchio, mm. um, and yes, there is the trans trope. I'm a real boy there. We don't need to hide that. <laughs> but she went to town making this costume for me, and it was my favorite costume. And I was like five or six, um, but she didn't argue like, oh, are you sure you don't want to you know, be like a princess or right.
0: I don't know. Change your mind somehow. Yeah. She Come was like, on.
1: You want to be Pinocchio? Okay. Here you go. And... It's just little things like that. Like she just saw me and was like, "What's the point of arguing it?" And you know, to give my parents credit too, they they let that happen as well. Yeah. You know, up to a point. It's cute when you're little, but when you're when you're older, (laughs) when society
0: creeps in and we have expectations. Uh,
1: Good old Western society. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. I guess, um, do you want to pick up like when you were 12 and 13 and things sort of changed, your parents, I think you said that's when they got divorced and that's when puberty hits and that's when you're sort of um, expected to act more like a girl. Yeah. Like, what were those years like between that age and like 18 when you became an adult?
1: Well, I would argue that I was very much an adult as a kid. I kind of had to grow up pretty quickly, yeah, um but developmentally and you know chronologically, I certainly wasn't so so yeah, twelve thirteen um like I said, my parents um were experiencing bankruptcy. we um had to move out of my childhood home really quickly because they were defaulting on mortgage payments and things like that, um, like we had to move within like two weeks. Um, And fortunately, again, because my mom being as tenacious as she is and hardworking, she was able to find a house, like literally a street away from where I was living at the time so that I didn't have to move schools, all of that. And, you know, throughout this whole period, I mean, throughout my whole childhood, my parents, I never saw them get along. I can remember them going on one date. And I know memory is not always the most reliable thing, but that's pretty astonishing that as a child, I only remember one date. Um, but there was a lot of arguing, a lot of, um, emotional, um, volatility within the home. And so at this age, you know, they're trying to find a new place, bankruptcy, getting divorce proceedings in place. Um, and at the same time, I'm dealing with a lot of my own insecurities, like I said, I'd been bullied pretty much throughout my whole elementary school career. I'm starting middle school, which is hell, I think for every child absolutely um I would not go back to those years if you Mm-mm. paid me um but um around this time i I remember um Kind of getting more aware of my queerness in a way. Like I, I've I've been a consummate um, journaling fanatic since I was little. Um, and I have journals.
0: Were you a reader too? Oh, like when you were little?
1: Oh, oh yeah. That
0: had to have been an escape then too, or like a safe place for you.
1: Reading books, all of that. I mean, that that really was my haven, um, and continues to be. Um, and again, like finding those stories where I felt like, oh, that's a part of me that I see reflected, even though it was usually cisgender men. I was like, oh, I want to be that. There was some gender envy going on there, even though I didn't know it. But I was very much a writer. I did creative writing. I won competitions for that as well. This feels like I'm bragging. I won this. Oh, and I won you that. go, you go. <laughs> we like bragging. But um, I have looked back at my old journals and you know there's the you know typical 13 year old stuff like oh I hate going to school and this person looked at me cross-eyed or something like that and it feels so big at the time that you have to write it down but there were a few entries at that time where I wrote I think I might be gay and you know trying to parse that out because up to that point what I now see as gender envy of these tv film you know literary characters I was coding as I have a crush on these people Um, and you know maybe I did maybe I didn't queerness and sexuality and all of that it's very fluid but the time, I very much assumed that I was straight, because that's what we're raised to think is the default. But there were these moments that were powerful enough to me that I wrote them down. And I look back and think, if only I could have talked with that little kid, you know, that 13-year-old that was trying to get any sort of stability anywhere. Um, who's wrestling with these thoughts internally as well and just say, you don't have to have it all figured out. Labels are not as important. You feel what you feel and it's going to be okay. I like, think I would give so much for that. I might even go back to middle school just to do that. But yeah, that's As long a, as you're paid. As long as I'm paid. Yeah. Handsomely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was the first A little inkling that I had of my queerness, aside from all the tomboyishness growing up. Um, But I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell any friends. I mean, at the time, I mean, like, growing up, I think, at least in elementary school, I was one of maybe just a handful of kids who weren't um, in the LDS church. So I already stood out. And I knew that that religion did not favor (laughs) people who were not cis or straight. So I couldn't tell my friends. They already thought that I was a weirdo because I mean, I kind of was, but they didn't find it as endearing as I think my family did or that I do in retrospect. So I kept it inside. I didn't tell my parents. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have told my dad because we just didn't have that kind of relationship. And even though I was closer with my mom, didn't tell her. Um, And at around the same time, um, even though I had this great relationship with Grammy and everything, uh, she had gotten diagnosed with lung cancer, um, which was a huge blow. Um, And so I was just left with these thoughts and thinking, okay, there it is. I'm going to just act as though nothing is different, that I'm not having these thoughts, these feelings, and proceed as normal or typical. Um, And I don't think that I really struggled all that much with my sexuality. Um, I certainly didn't understand or have any notion of what being trans was. That was just not language that I had. I didn't have that until like end of high school, maybe college. So... From 13 ish to high school, it was a lot of what I can see as masking to try to get through. And I was, I struggled. I struggled a lot. Um, Lots of moments of really deep depression. Um, You know, there were moments of um, thinking of suicide as a young kid, um, self harming, uh, disordered eating habits. I mean, they'd been there actually since I was about, like, age eight, Um, but they started getting more significantly impactful on my life, Um, and at the time, there just wasn't access to getting any kind of support. Um, And telling my mom, as much as I love her now, um, telling her then what I was going through, it was met with a lot of resistance, she was going through her own shit. I get it. She had her own trauma to deal with, but um, the response was not favorable. So I dealt with a lot of stuff on my own. Um, But I had some good friends that I started really bonding with in in high school in particular. Um, And now that we're all adults, I would say like the majority of us have come out as queer in some regards. So we found each other, even though we didn't know we were finding each other.
0: Yeah. What What high school did you go to?
1: I went to Brighton. Okay. Yeah. Was
0: there a GSA or any kind oh. of support group there? What What years was that?
1: I um, I graduated in 2003, okay. so, yeah. Um, oh, wow. my gosh, 20 years. I was thinking, having, well, a you're moment. so young, and then I'm like,
0: oh, that was 20 years
1: ago. Yeah, can we have a silence for the existential crisis that's coming up? Um. <laughs> yeah, hello. But um, yeah, I had you know at least some really, some really solid friends. Um, I had one really great best friend, um, Christy, who wasn't queer, um, but she was she was what I needed. Um, she was she was lds but she was very much um a rebellious (laughs) lds uh church member and i think if it wasn't for her i don't think i wouldn't have survived high school um she really she really saved me and she's been one of the people that i've felt the most comfortable with or had felt the most comfortable with in years after high school talking about my sexuality and gender and things like that but um in the actual midst of the high school experience, what really was a catalyst for me feeling like I had a home was um, volunteering at the Utah AIDS Foundation. Um, When I was 16, my mom, you know, once summer hit, she's like, you either have to get a job or you have to volunteer, you have to do something. You can't just be at home. And at the time I was like, that's bullshit. You know, (laughs) I just worked my ass off this past year. I want a break. But um, I think her enforcement of that really changed me Um, because volunteering at the AIDS Foundation, like, again, it's like one of those sentinel moments in my life where I'm like, I feel like I have a place. Like first there was Grammy and then there was the AIDS Foundation. And, you know, I first started volunteering just once a week, couple of hours working in their food bank and got to meet the clients coming in, got to interact with folks who were really struggling. And it was my first real experience with queer folks. I knew who queer people were. I mean, we had open conversations at home about, you know, this is what homosexuality is. This is what bisexuality is. Um, Other terms we didn't know, but um, my mom, never tried to hide that, but this was my first real interaction with these people, and it was like, oh, these people have a place, and I knew that, um, obviously the fight against HIV and AIDS was highly centered on, um, the queer community, um, just by virtue of, you know, what we've seen over history and what, you know, the AIDS crisis was in the 80s and 90s, but, um that work alone really made me feel like i not only had a place to exercise some activist work that i really wanted to do but that i could be queer too even though nobody knew i didn't talk about it there again there was just this inherent i need to hide this yeah and even though I developed some really strong relationships with people there, I'd been there for years, um, doing pretty much every volunteer job in the book. <laughs> um, I never told people that I was queer.
0: So you didn't, you didn't just make it a summer volunteer thing. It sounds like you fell in love with the opportunity to serve and, and mm-hmm. to be around some incredible people and you stayed.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that was my first taste, I think, of what social work is and um and doing some counseling too like I did test site counseling and getting to sit with people in that that pain of not knowing was really powerful um it was also my first time of ever going to uh the pride parade um and getting to march with the uh, UAF contingent was such a fun time so fun. Um, and I'm really really um grateful that my mom was like, "Yeah, go, go do that." She was never um disparaging of that. She That's wanted awesome. me to do that. And and all the same, like I said, like even though it was so accepting that it was so so the place that I wanted to be, I couldn't tell people that I was queer, and that became really really problematic Um, my senior year of high school um, up to that point I never really dated um, for a variety of reasons but um, I was taking a drama class my senior year I always loved acting um, and finally got the opportunity to be in they called it the production company because it was supposed to be like the really really good actors I was not that good I can see I can say that with confidence now. I was I was fine. I was not great. But in that um in that class, of course, if we're gonna be stereotypical, lots of queer kids. Um, <laughs> whether we all knew it or not. But there was um this small group that I got to be really close friends with. Um, two two of the people in that group. It was it was four of us. Um two of them i knew were queer um and they i mean they were they were fantastic folks but um it was me and this girl um that i thought you know we're just friends whatever and over the course of our rehearsing um the play that we were in we got a lot closer and it was in true quintessential high school dramatic fashion um it got, I think it was after we had done, no, it wasn't after we had done the play. It was beforehand. This girl, um, she, <laughs> it was around Valentine's Day. Um, and I have never gotten anything for Valentine's Day up to this point in my life. And my high school had this little, Thing where you could buy cookies or flowers or whatever and give them to your crush or have some have them delivered to your crush, in class, and almost every single class that day, I was getting something from some anonymous person, and I was befuddled, flummoxed. I had no idea what was going on. Wait a second, befuddled. Befuddled, mm. um, confused. Writing <laughs> it I was gonna say bemused, but then oh, I thought bemused. Yeah. Yeah, befuddled, befuddled. Yeah, I was befuddled because nobody had ever expressed interest in me before, and now I have this person who I, this anonymous person, sending me these things. It felt good, but it was just like, this has to be a mistake. Not long after that, this girl, um, she wanted to talk to me, and it was at lunch, and I met her in the drama room, and she's in tears, just bawling, bawling, bawling. I'm like, what the hell happened? Because I thought she had, like, gone to a doctor appointment beforehand. And, um, and she, I thought she was going to, you know, say I have cancer and I'm going to die. And I'm like, what is going on? And she says, I love you. And it didn't really register. And I'm not the best with social cues. Um, so I'm like, what do you mean? What is going on? And I'm like, well, I love you too. We're friends, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, I love you. And then it finally sank in and she ran away. And I was just standing there like, what the hell do I do with this? (laughs) And um, proceeded to go back and talk to, you know, I saw my friend Christy who, and I didn't tell her what had happened. I just, just some weirdness had happened. And then, later on, because we were still rehearsing, putting this play on, I had to interact with this girl. And, um, you know, before we had our conversation about what does this mean, it really got me soul searching and thinking like, well, am I queer? What is going on with me in relation to this girl? And I knew, I think at that point, yeah, I'm queer. And I basically said, to her, yeah, I like you too. I don't know if I, I mean, I definitely had affection for her. And at the same time, I felt kind of pressured in order you know, to respond to that because I didn't know what to do. And taking care of people's feelings and being the de facto therapist has been my role since I was a kid. So I was like, if I say I like you, then everything will be fine. Um, so that led to us dating for a short time. But um, we weren't out, neither of us. She was also a member of the LDS Church, and her family was very much not not a fan of queer people. And um, we had come to this agreement that if she came out, then I would come out. And... This was not my proudest moment but <laughs> oh, did um, you back out <laughs> it, it, it was very very messy and um and you know I've since reconnected with this person and you know apologized and you know we're on good terms but um we got caught by one of her siblings at one point and it, that led to her having to come out to her family and all of this and that scared the shit out of me because at this time things between me and my mom we were not we were not doing well um, we were arguing, as I think a lot of kids do with their parents at that age. But it, it, yeah. it was really bad. Um, um, I don't think that either of us were at our best, but she was definitely um, not the mom I needed. And it was really scary being around her a lot of the time for me. And I thought, I can't come out to her. I just can't. Even if you know, as I said, you know, I have all this evidence to show that she's supportive, she likes queer people, all of that. I can't do that because that's way too much emotional vulnerability, and I have the language for that now. But at the time, it was just too scary. So I broke up with this girl. I I really botched it, and I had a lot of shame over that. And at that point went right back in the closet and that was a lot to to do to another person um and I still have guilt over that and I also feel guilty that I hurt me in that as well like I didn't allow myself that that opportunity to be authentic because I was so scared and it helped me survive I see that but
0: It's it's a real emotion. I mean, most queer people in the best of situations are terrified to come out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, with all the things that were going on with your mom and dad and your mom in particular, I mean, I'm glad that you've reconnected with that person and then you guys are friends again. And I'm sure they completely understand looking back.
1: I hope so. Oh, yeah. I hope so. Um, I mean
0: cuz you were she was sort of forced to come out so it wasn't like yeah let's do this and then she came out and then you said oh i changed my mind <laughs> i that yeah looked rough i'm not doing it
1: <laughs> i think if it had happened in that way you're describing like we yeah. both made the decision yeah. it would have turned out much differently but um it was messy and yeah i was 18 and stupid but
0: okay well i have never gotten a gift in every class on valentine's day <laughs> I'm a little tiny jealous. You
1: know, and I've been with people since then, but I don't think I got, got that kind of treatment since. So yeah, she, she did a really high standard. She really did. She really did. <laughs> and, and at like a high schooler budget, too. I mean, that's right.
0: a lot. I mean, she probably had to rob a bank. Have you ever thought of that?
1: You know, I I could see her doing that, <laughs> knowing her. She was, she was feisty. <laughs> <laughs>
0: do what you got to do. Oh,
1: so it sounds
0: like... Um, Gosh, I'm so sorry that you experienced bowling for so many years of your life. I mean, I think you probably know as a therapist that that's not an uncommon scenario Mm. for a lot of kids. Um, I'm glad that you found some of your people in high school and your place and a place where you could create. And I think the arts are always such a great way to find peace. Mm. And you were able to do that in your drama drama class and with all yeah. your friends. Yeah. Um, at what point I can sense that social work has always been sort of a part of you. Number one, you're an old soul. <laughs> Number two, taking care of others has always been sort of part of your narrative. Um, when you were looking at moving on from high school, what did you see yourself doing?
1: when I was in high school, I I really wanted to be a psychologist. Um, like I, I love psychology. I still do. Obviously that's my work. Um, so my thought was from the get go, I'm going to go into psychology. So I got into, I started at the U, um, and had initially put in a status of being a pre-major for psychology, but then looking at all the requirements and things like that, it overwhelmed me. Um, and I ran away from that. And through a confluence of things, um, I ended up landing on being an English major, um, which really, like, as much as I love my which, job. As- which
0: is befuddling. Ah. <laughs> gotcha.
1: Nice, nice. Do we have a tally of all, like, the I'm writing the them words? all down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but really, like, English and literature, that, that's my first love. Mm -hmm. That will always be my first love stories, writing, um, that's, that's where my heart is. Um, and I feel like social work and therapy is kind of a natural, um, projection of that because we're listening to people's stories. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but once I, I found that psychology just wasn't cutting it for me, I realized, one, I didn't want to put in that kind of effort. I've been doing I've been working my ass off for years and years in high school, um, volunteering, working school, AP classes, all of this stuff. And I wanted to do something that felt like me. And psychology at that point felt like I'm doing this for a career and not for me. Mm-hmm. So I switched to English. and it was it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, I got to learn so much um, and it's really, it really helped me feel more like myself when I didn't feel like that in lots of places. Um, And during my college years, um, still closeted all of that good stuff, even though I'm doing all this stuff for the queer community, volunteering at Pride, in the parade. Um, getting escorted away by cops while yelling at protesters at a church service I mean that's who I was Mm. but was I out? no (laughs) I mean it it was just like living this double life you were
0: like the A plus ally
1: oh yeah (laughs) and how many times do we hear stories of like oh I'm an ally I'm an ally oh actually I'm queer Mm -hmm. (laughs) damn but also fantastic. Um, but while I was doing all of that, um, like I said, I didn't really date a lot in high school. I had this um, one relationship, but following that I didn't really do much of anything, but college hit and like, oh, well, I should date. So, um, OK Cupid was the dating site of the time. Um, wow. Yeah. Sounds and, intense. It, It was so stupid. (laughs) I'm I'm not on dating sites now. I actually identify as ace now. But um, what I hear are that the dating sites are a little bit better. Although a little shadier. I don't know. Anyway, I was on OkCupid. I signed up with a college friend just playing around. And put that I was straight. And met this young man um, through the dating site. And... um, and we hit it off. I mean, we had a really good rapport with one another. We had same interests. I mean, it was perfect and ended up meeting in person and started dating relatively soon after we, we met. Um, and again, like, I'm not proud of a lot of the things I did in this relationship, but, um, I know that it, it has to be part of my story. Like it's informed a lot of me, but this this relationship was something I clung to because things were still so chaotic at home with my mom and, you know, my life was just spinning out of control. But I was so desperate for his attention and feeling like I need to look normal, I think, to an extent that I did not act um, in the most loving manner towards him at some points, um, which is quite a euphemistic way of saying I was a... I was out of control. I was not nice um, and could be abusive at times. I'll be, uh, you know, very transparent about that. But um, there was also a lot of shame within that relationship, you know, thinking back to what we were talking about with fears entering into puberty, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got all of that coming up, you know, sex, hormones, and everything. It was coming up here as well, Um, and he came from an evangelical Christian background and he had his own issues around sex coming up and so when it we were starting to get more intimate there was lots of shame being placed on me um and I didn't like I internalized that to a very big extent um and that came out sideways and I remember um having some really hard conversations with him some really emotional ones and there was one conversation where I told him about this relationship in high school and told him at that time, I said, I'm bi, thinking, okay, this is the first person that I've ever told about this relationship. I trust him enough um, and I'm trusting him enough to say, oh, I'm not straight. And his response was, oh, I think that's hot and i know he said that thinking that that was going to be somehow affirming but yet again it was one of those going back into the shell we're never going to talk about this i am not not this i'm going to hide it and um and you know we stayed together for a long time we we dated for 3 years we were married for 3 years yeah i know
0: I, I did my shock face. I,
1: I I have that same face internally every time I think about <laughs> that. Um, and, I mean, this is all going on, you know, during college and right after college um, while I'm trying to figure out who I am and what I'm going to do with this English degree. Um, and I I don't regret the relationship, but I do regret the impact it had on both of us. Um but over the course of the relationship, we um, we went to therapy. I had my own individual therapist. He had his. We did couples counseling. And throughout the course of my own therapy, you know, I was starting to be more um, aware of the patterns that had been emerging for me, why I was acting the way I was, and trying to be more authentic, and finding that our relationship was stifling that. And I was learning to express that in a more healthy way, and he didn't feel seen or respected by that and um was I think threatened by it to an extent I don't want to psychoanalyze him um but um at that point I was starting to be more aware of my own queerness inside and accepting it finally internally I don't think I ever talked about it with that therapist really but I knew inside yeah I'm not I'm not straight and I'm gonna be fine with that um, we ended up getting divorced. Um, and not long after that, um, I was just on this whirlwind of like, okay, I'm gonna be doing all of these things that I've been putting off that I haven't been living truthfully to myself. I came out as queer. Um initially, you know, saying I was bi, then I was lesbian. Um, I like the word queer now because I feel like it best encapsulates the fluidity of things. But came out to family, to friends, all of that, and um, converted to Judaism in the same period um, in a very affirming space. Had a great rabbi that was just like, okay, you're queer, that's not an issue. And that was one of my first experiences, personally, of a affirming faith. Um, And then came to social work um, because of a great mentor I had um, a college professor that I'd had, who I'd kept in touch with, um, I told her, you know, I think I want to go try to get my second degree in psychology. I was back to that. Um, and she said, well, you should look into social work because you're talking about wanting to do activism and, and, you know, also more one-on-one work. Social work is perfect for you. So on a whim, I applied to the social work program at the U, got in, was this their graduate program Mm -hmm. oh congratulations yeah um thank you um so yeah i did the msw program from 2012 to 2014 and um was very insistent that i do queer centered work there i fought to do my first year practicum at the utah pride center um where i had my first encounters like genuine you know, individual encounters with trans folks. And it got me thinking about my own gender identity. Um, Not to a huge extent at that point, but um, at least got me thinking, oh, there's something there maybe, but I'm not gonna really think about it. It's not pertinent. Um, It wasn't until the next year, um, when I was doing an internship at the Women's Resource Center at the University of Utah, Doing more individual therapy work and um, meeting all sorts of clients and people um, that I really started to question my gender. You know, up to this point, I'd been assuming I was a cis woman who presented in a more masculine way, and that that was fine. That was what it was. After years of trying to play at femininity, I finally accepted this is not not me. Um, but I had a client um while I was doing that internship who did identify as trans and it was the first trans client I'd ever had and I have such strong memories of sitting in sessions with this person and being like everything you're saying is what I'm thinking this this you you are me which I don't think now that the, that was very newbie therapist thing to be like, oh, let me project everything <laughs> on my client here. But it really got me thinking. And um, at this point, i had started seeing a new therapist um, and was processing trauma and sexuality and all of that stuff. But um, was now becoming more accustomed to what clinical speak was like amongst clinicians and had to be queer affirming and I had a supervisor who bless her heart um <laughs> was trying to be very affirming um and she had approached me at one point we were at some event and I was wearing a tie or something and she told me oh you look like a real dyke that was her quote um Using that is very empowering, and you know, and I realize that that term is very problematic um, for some folks. But I remember my initial response internally was, "That's not what I'm going for." And I think that was the first time I realized, "Oh, I'm I'm not a lesbian. I'm not a woman. I don't know what I am." And I think my social work career has been so intertwined with my gender identity exploration, um, that it's really hard to in- to tease the two apart, um, but that was definitely the catalyst to getting it, to bringing it to my own therapy, and processing that.
0: If I'm, if I'm doing the math right, um, you were about 31 when you came out?
1: Yes, yeah, 31, 32-ish, um, as trans, and... Whew. <laughs> it feels like it's been longer and also shorter. It's kind of funny how time works like that. But um, yeah, the the way that I got to that was again in therapy. We were doing some really intensive um, PTSD informed work and doing some exploration of different parts. I don't know if this is what my therapist was going for, but um, there's this brand of therapy called Internal Family Systems where you identify different parts of you, you know, the different parts that are there to protect you, um, to really manage the distressing situations that these exiled parts of us can't handle. Typically, that's like inner child parts. And we were focusing on inner child stuff. And we were exploring what that little kid was like and what they needed and everything and my therapist and I both came to the conclusion within the same moment that this inner child that we were trying to connect with to heal um was a little boy like my therapist first said that it felt like there was a more masculine energy there um that that's what she was picking up on and like This image of a little boy was coming up. I'm like, yeah, that that's what's coming up for me too. And again, it's that image that I mentioned earlier on of that little three, four-year-old me at Disneyland, the little me that was playing Tiny Tim, that was Pinocchio. And he was coming back and being like, Hello, remember me? (laughs) This is who you are. And even though we weren't really processing gender or talking about that, I think had we not been so invested in detangling the effects that my trauma had on me and getting back to the root of who I am, that inner child, I don't think I would have come out um, and I'm so grateful for that therapist um she without her like i would not I would not be who I am right now, so I'm really really a strong believer in the the power of therapy um I mean obviously as a therapist I am a little bit <laughs> biased. biased um but um yeah so initially I was exploring what what terms worked for me the the first term that I thought really resonated was genderqueer because at first I was like I don't know if I can say trans that feels a little presumptuous I guess um but I I came out to my family first. I, I told my mom, and she was fine. Hmm. Does she understand what gender queer is? No. <laughs> like, I mean, it was hard enough to, to talk about gender stuff anyway, but to throw out a new term was difficult. But um, came out to friends, family. I was working um, at a, a hospital at that time in a geriatric psychiatry unit and wanted to come out and... It required me to be kind of the gender expert for the whole team. I had to, I I volunteered to give an explanation on what being trans was to folks. And it came out, so to speak, um, that I was the first trans person at this hospital. Hmm. At least that was out. Yeah. Yeah. So So what year was that? Oh, that was 2017? 2018 okay. 2017
0: that seems like yesterday i know
1: i know um six
0: years ago damn i know yeah <laughs> so I don't like this i know <laughs> can, can we so... can we stop it please can we have a hold button we can't <laughs> that's the terrifying part and beautiful part yeah
1: but um yeah it came out there and then um Came at, it did a uh, legal name and gender marker change that same year. Um, had some difficult experiences with um, some folks in my family, my um, aunt and uncle on my mom's side. My my uncle was fine. My aunt has had some interesting reactions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's a thing. She can deal with her own stuff. Yeah. I don't really talk with her that much anyway. But um, my dad. My dad was remarkably supportive. Um, that really surprised me because we like I've said, you know we we're not close. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has been astonishingly good about gendering me correctly, um, using the right pronouns, the right name, pretty much from the get-go. I mean there have been a couple of stumbles, but for somebody that I don't talk to, more than like maybe once a month that he remembers. Mm -hmm. That's pretty, pretty astonishing. Um,
0: I think it's like a great reminder to, in my experience with my son, like as I think about our journey, it's amazing. The people I thought would support us, Mm -hmm. unfortunately weren't there or have not been there. Mm -hmm. And the people that I thought would not be supportive we're supportive and have been supportive, and so it's a good reminder that we just don't really know you know individuals it's a risky it's a risky thing when we share something personal about ourselves, yeah, but the possibility of individuals stepping up is really great and profound and beautiful
1: and I think that it also speaks to who gets to hear your story as mm-hmm. well. Not mm-hmm. everybody deserves it true um and to know that there are people out there that you assume are going to be supportive and that are not—it's like, well, how have I trusted you before? Mm-hmm. You know, what parts of me have you already been doubting or questioning? And I'm really—I feel like I'm in a really fortunate position that I haven't really faced much transphobic um, blowback. Mm-hmm. I've had great friends. Um, some that I've lost just by kind of the same thing that you're saying yeah. like not excuse me not necessarily unsupportive but just kind of like I don't know what to do with this right and and I miss them and I also know that I'm in a better place now mentally um emotionally financially just by virtue of doing what I love because of my queerness um And I wouldn't give that up, give that up.
0: I want to sort of capitalize on the fact that you are a therapist. Um, As we wrap the podcast up, like, what kind of, what kind of advice would you give parents that have a queer child or parents that don't know if they have a queer
1: child? Just be open, you know, kids come to us with who they are when they're young, and if they're showing you that they're interested in sports or fashion or drama or whatever it is, just let them do that. Because we do that with kids with activities, but when they're coming to us with these questions about gender or saying that they are trans or non-binary or gender diverse. Let them explore that. Gender is play. We are all playing at gender, whether we know it or not. Cis, trans, non-binary, whatever. Letting kids have the opportunity to play, I think, is vital. And just because your kid is coming to you saying that they are this identity, it doesn't mean that there's anything broken. Um... I mean, part of why I'm trying so hard to be a visibly trans queer therapist is to not only support these kids who need somebody who understands their life experience, but to also show them that you're not going to have this life that's going to be terrible. You know, have I had my struggles? Yeah. I mean, I'm human. We all do. But... I'm in a successful career. I'm doing what I love. And I can do that while being trans. And I think it's so important for parents to see that too, because we do see these stories of queer tragedy, trans lives being lost. And yes, that's incredibly important to hear and you know honor, like on Trans Day of Remembrance. But we also need to celebrate these trans victories. Um, and, you know, kids definitely have more access to that if they're on you know social media and things like that. But parents need that too. Mm-hmm. They need to know that these stories that we hear that are so tragic are not the only stories out there. Mm-hmm. And that they can be part of creating a really meaningful story with their kid if they just allow the kid to be honest and open and know that there are resources out there.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, I help moderate a few support groups and I think the one thing I see over and over is the fear when Mm -hmm. a child comes out because as a parent, your first response or inkling is to protect that child. And when we don't see any other path for a child except for the straight path, we become terrified. Um, But like you said, once we know people, know stories see the success in people's lives no matter what you know their gender is or their sexuality is i think as a parent it gives you hope my Mm. kid's gonna be okay
1: yeah and when the parents feel hopeful kids pick up on that oh yeah kids are very keenly attuned to their parents moods and beliefs and if they see parents talking positively about queer things Mm -hmm. taking the time to learn Mm -hmm. it makes a huge impact Mm -hmm.
0: so what would you say then to maybe the queer kid that's listening to this podcast that isn't out of the closet
1: I would say that if it feels safe it's okay to come out but there's no, there's no timeline. I didn't come out until I was an adult, and sure, I would have liked to come out earlier, but that doesn't mean that you can't still have a life that has worth meaning. Um, and it, there are people out there that understand and that feel the same way, and they're waiting for you. The world's waiting for you. And when you can find a space to be authentic and true, that feels secure, you can thrive. You don't have to drop anchor. This is not something that's a death sentence. It's a life sentence. My life has gotten exponentially better since I've come out. Are there struggles? Sure, but that's the human condition. We all are gonna struggle. But being queer doesn't have to be a struggle. And the messages that we hear, the bullying that you might encounter, those are not the true stories. The true story is that you are beautiful and talented and creative and all of those good things. And the world wants that. Wow, what a beautiful
0: podcast! I don't want to. I don't want to cut you short. Is there anything else you want to add before we conclude?
1: Um, thank you for letting me yammer. <laughs> I know i <laughs> Shoot, i was I was
0: trying to put the yammering. In. Yes, I love your yammering. Oh, thank you.
1: Um,
0: what was the other word before we came on? Yammering, fuddled, oh. and you said something else. I did. I'd like to hang with you just to learn all these new words.
1: I I will create a a Jack-centric dictionary and send it to you. Absolutely. No, I'm serious. No, (laughs) no, you're
0: like at least 10 words that when your podcast comes out, we can include.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, all seriousness, like this has been such an honor. Um, And, you know, I know my story has taken some very – weird tangents in this you know this evening that we've been talking together and it may not seem like it's a linear story but I really just appreciate the space and I hope that people can find spaces like this you know where they can talk with folks and just be open I love that you have this as just a a guiding post for people to find maybe some stories that resonate with them
0: absolutely and and my hope is too that people that are scared, hesitant, don't know much about the queer community, transgender individuals will have the courage to listen, to to allow their heart and mind to catch up. I mean, I know the change in me since 2011 and so I have great hope that that change can happen pretty much in everyone if we have the courage to do the homework. Yeah. So.
1: Thank you for doing the homework.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here. Seriously, it's been a a wonderful podcast, Jack. And I just want to remind the listeners, you know, if you could share this podcast with two or three people that you think would be willing to listen, if you would ask people to subscribe to the Human Stories podcast. And, you know, we just I need to do a better effort at getting these stories out in my mind and heart. My vision is everyone in the world is listening to this podcast, but I know that also it takes my audience um, being willing to share. So, and that means you. Undoubtedly. (laughs) I don't even think you're on social media, are you?
1: I am, but I have a private account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, (laughs) I don't want clients necessarily finding me on the Instagram. (laughs) Oh, there you go. I
0: know that is a difficult one, but um, if you can share, and that's always uncomfortable. I know for me when I... part of something like oh embarrassing but your word your voice and your endorsement of your own story is very important so let's do it let's uh let's get out there and let's make the world a better place thank you again for listening thank you again jack for being here and this is jill hazard Rowe with human stories